The group Save Bulga Forest has been causing quite a ruckus in the forests of the mid-north coast, where they have been disrupting logging operations and calling out the Forestry Corporation of New South Wales for their dubious practices. NoFibs is pleased to present this podcast from citizen journalist Tezza Campisi, who visited the community camp in Elands, where there is a long history of environmental activism. Drive about two hours west from Port Macquarie, through the lands of the Birupai people, out the back of Bargo and past the avocado plantations in Comboyne, and keep going up, 15,000 feet up, and eventually you will arrive in the community of Elands on the Bulga Plateau. If you remain still, you might hear the whipbirds or the fantail cuckoos, but you will also hear a low rumbling. It's a log truck, piled high with timber so fresh you can still smell it, emerging from the forest. But there's also another sound. I'm locked on here at Heron's Creek Sawmill. Just stopped a huge wood chip truck. Forest. We've got three machines which we've managed to stop. A collective of protesters under the banner Save Bolga Forest has been disrupting forestry operations across the region, calling out what they see as unsustainable forestry practices in New South Wales. So how did this group emerge and what drives them to action? To understand this, we need to begin with the story of the Bolga Plateau itself. The forests of the Bulga Plateau always were and always will be Biripai country. The isolated plateau was a place of refuge, an ark carrying little pockets of deep time, harbouring a mosaic of subtropical rainforests tangled with vines and epiphytes, as well as cool temperate forest communities, with ancient species such as the Antarctic beech, which had been growing there for 100 million years. Yet, this was all to change upon the arrival of Europeans. So 1912, farms available on the plateau for settlement and the first dairy farmers arrived. And so some of those people were still alive in the 1970s and that's why I started doing oral history. That's the voice of Helen Hanna, a local historian speaking to me amid the ruckus of the flying fox colony in Wingham. Her historical account offers a glimpse at the harsh life ways of the first colonial settlers who, with hands and hardened resolve, carved out their homesteads on the plateau. They had to see that their children didn't wander too far from the shack that they were living in because they would get lost in the bush. And then there were animals like the eastern native cat which would come in and kill their chooks and they depended on eggs as part of their nutrition. The forests were a thing of danger and were quickly converted to thousands of acres of ryegrass and paspalum. There are sad stories of the huge fires that people were burning down the forests up there because coming from an English-European background, they felt they had to clear the land to be able to plant pasture and have cattle or whatever would, could bring them an income. They thought because the trees were big that the soil would be rich soil. That wasn't the case. It's really sad and it was really sad for them too because occasionally one of them would say to me the only crop that was really worthwhile was that first timber crop and we cut it down and we burnt it 
when people went into hard times, like the Depression of the 1930s, then people were able to sometimes sell off some of their the timber on their properties mm. and that way they could get enough money. In the 1950s, there were still 67 dairy farms on the plateau. Yet, as the price of cream declined and profits became more marginal, farmers began to sell off their land, initiating a new wave of settlement. I call myself a second-generation ewe land settler, so to speak. My name's Jane Watson. I'm nearly 67 years old. I've lived in Elands now for 36 years. I came for a visit in November 1977 and this naked woman jumped out of a cardboard chocolate cake in the hall as a gift for her boyfriend. And I thought, I think I like this place. (laughs) It really started in the 60s. Some hippies, I guess you'd call them, starting to come to this area. You know, the farmers were getting older. A lot of alternates would have bought the places and just undone all that clearing work that had been maintained. (laughs) Yeah, there were, I don't know how many hundreds of alternative people. That's the voice of Jenny Allison, who, like Jane, also moved up onto the plateau in the 80s. 60% of the newcomers had tertiary qualifications. They'd all been to university, they were graduates. Some had PhDs, master's degrees. Alternates, hippies, I don't know what you want to call them, but they were well-travelled and they were well-educated. It was not a snobby thing to go to university anymore. And lots of women went and it was free. lots of markets and dances and there was an amazing amount of art going on like artists were attracted to the beauty of the area. I think areas of the east coast just benefited from their wave of new settlers that came in. Accompanying this new wave of settlers was not only the aroma of patchouli but a new set of fundamental values in which social justice and environmental ethics were paramount. We'd grown up in an era of the Vietnam War and apartheid and all these things where you had a right to protest and you did protest. And that just sort of continued up here. So what triggered the first stirrings of forest action on the plateau? It was the wood chip trucks. Wood chipping came in in 1988, I think. And where there'd been the occasional log truck with big logs on it. But when the wood chipping started, there were eight to ten log trucks a day with these little saplings on them. The first concern of the community was for the school bus and the traffic because very narrow winding mountain road with a steep drop over the side. We're fairly isolated and we had magnificent forests out there. It was the 80s when they really started to exploit what was out here. Equipment was getting better. The timber on the lowland country was getting scarcer Mm. because we had been logging it for 150 years. So now they had to go where the resource was and the resource was in the hinterlands. When logging up here ramped up, was watching these huge trees, maybe two, sometimes only one tree come out per log truck. Wow. And we all started going, what is this? And we all just went out there and started looking, Mm. basically. And the more you go out into the forest and you saw these big old trees, 
you just have to be a robot, I think, not to be affected. Many of the forests on the plateau were classified as old growth forests, denoting an ecologically mature community in which many of the individual trees are reaching the natural end of their life cycle. I think they've cut down some tallow woods that have been 12 or 1300 years old. I mean, it's immense, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And they're these complex things that the older they get, the more animals can use them because they get hollows in them and there's you know, arboreal mammals, birds, probably snakes, rats, all sorts of things just find refuge. I'm going to tear up just thinking about a big old forest. I dread to use the word spiritual, but it's like, I don't know, it's just awe-inspiring. When you get out there early and the dews on leaves of the trees and it's like diamonds sparkling. I'm not a poet, but I think it would inspire people. People just were awe, awestruck by the size of the trees. And someone else said it's like being in a European cathedral with the, with the height of the canopy and, and they, they cut them all down. Once aware of the peril of the forest, members of the community came together to form Wingham Forest Action, known affectionately as WUFA. Initially, the group intended to ensure that environmental impact statements were being carried out by forestry, but very quickly things escalated into direct action. There are a lot of iconic images of people locked onto bulldozers and buried in pipes that are parts of the history that are often captured by the collective imagination. So, would you be able to define for me what you see as civil disobedience? Civil disobedience, it goes right back to Gandhi, it goes right back to um, Thomas Jefferson, who was the author of the Declaration of Independence in America, and he wrote in a letter, a strict adherence of the written law is doubtless one of the highest duties of a good citizen, but not the highest. The laws of necessity, of self-preservation, of saving our country when in danger are of higher obligation. When the law isn't doing the right thing, you have to break the law and, and do what you have to do to survive, really. I mean, our government is not doing its job. It's not protecting our wildlife. It's not protecting our water catchments. It's making a measly dollar for things that are far worth far more keeping them in, in place. Disrupting logging operations was only half of Wufa's theory of change. As Jenny tells me, raising public awareness was fundamental to the campaign. I think education and public awareness is the, is the key thing. I brought my mother up from Sydney and we were passing through Bulladeela and she said, look at all the trees, what are you making a fuss about? And that sort of indicated to me that, you know, my mother was the average kind of person. And I thought, oh, she, she's never seen an old forest. All these trees that are the same size, uh, the same circumference and the same height, she thinks that's a forest. What do you think is the purpose of protest beyond merely stopping work for a day? It is to get people thinking. The people in the cities, I mean, it's the city people that change governments more than us folks in the regions. And that was certainly true in 93, 94, 95, all up and down the mid-north coast. There were huge forest protests and they just kept building momentum. 
talked about that stump truck that Wing and Forest Action got together. Tell me more about the stump truck. So what was it and where, where did it come from? Well, one of Wing and Forest Action's members was in Sydney at Patagonia. They had just opened their new shop there and they said that they would buy a stump from us. So I went out into the forest and I said to the guys I wanted a picnic table and I said I'd pay them a hundred bucks. They chopped a log and I got a local farmer to pick it up but he couldn't take the whole log on his truck so they had to cut it in half and on the highway down to Sydney to take it to Patagonia people in cars were just gawping at the at the logs like nobody had seen trees that big for a long time and so I rang Patagonia and I said look people are really interested can we keep the stumps and they said sure it was in Canberra and it was in Sydney it was in Queensland and then it came back down but most of the time it was in Castle Ray Street in Sydney until you actually see the size of an old growth stump and you in your imagination turn that into a tree of relative height you could actually see people recognizing and understanding what an old growth tree was i think we collected about 93,000 signatures on a petition over that six months we got lots of donations in the buckets the buckets kept the, the whole thing rolling for six months and it was leading up to the election. Our campaign for eight years led up to Bob Carr's election and he got in on Green preferences and in the tally room the night of the election he thanked the Greens for their preferences and said there would be a moratorium on old growth logging. Under Bob Carr, 17,500 hectares of forest were made into national parks on the plateau. Despite this, logging continues to occur, and 30 years on, the community is still calling out what they see as the dubious practices of the timber industry. You have to have faith that we will get it together. In the end, it's always us, the common people, really, that that change things. Mm. And the more... We are pitted up against this 1% that owns 99%. This capitalism that has nothing except profit. The more it has to be us, the people, that change all these things. Not far from the community camp established by the forest protesters with Save Bulga Forest are the Ellenborough Falls. It's a place where you can touch that immensity of evolutionary time. The rock face on the opposite ledge is 550 million years old, predating the very evolution of vascular plants by some 130 million years. Water cascades 200 metres into the gorge below, where you can still find groves of red cedar and tallowwood trees. As you walk down, sometimes you can feel the vibration of the water pounding the rocks. This is Jarrah Hicks, who is one of the community organisers and facilitators with Save Bulga Forest. So I'm Jarrah Hicks. I live here in Elands. I've lived here for three years. I moved here with my husband, Jai Allison, who was born in Tauri, but, you know, born and raised in Elands. Even though I didn't always grow up here, it's always been a home for me. What is it about the plateau that you think makes it so magnetising for you? For me, it's definitely the forests and the river. The forest is just like 
just so peaceful and majestic and so bold and powerful but so calm and stilled. The river is the lifeblood. It's amazing to live somewhere that you can swim and drink the water at the same time if you want to. I heard a study, I heard a woman speaking and she did a study of all of the rivers in New South Wales and studied the water quality over time and the Ellenborough was the only one whose water quality was improving over time. And a lot of that is because a lot of the catchment is forest. And so there's this interconnected relationship between the river and the forest. So can you tell me a little bit about the community and the nature of the community that lives up here? My experience of the community, and I've only been living here three years, it's really shaped by the fact that just sort of three months after I moved here, we had a very, very intense bushfire season, the 2019-20 fires. And we were surrounded by fire for a couple of months but there were you know there was a good few weeks where it was really intense mm -hmm. and the community came together just so powerfully to support each other and to protect the plateau that summer bushfires devoured five and a half million hectares of forest in new south wales the fires approached elands from multiple directions all at once burning right up to the opposite side of the falls where Jarrah and I sit. Some of the rainforest gullies didn't burn, but a lot of that area that's the sort of the in-between rainforest and the dry Euclid forest where the brush box trees are, a lot of that burnt. And so we've got a lot of standing dead brush box because they don't, they don't have the epicomic growth. They reshoot from the bottom. They have to start again. We're witnessing the type of landscape change and ecosystem change that comes with with climate change and with more frequent and hotter fires. This isn't the type of fire that the landscape has known before. What was it like living here surrounded by charred forests? It was really intense. Like mm. we went from drought, which was like you drive down out of our relatively green plateau mm. down to Wingham and the paddocks around Wingham, like it was just a dust bowl. Mm. And then, so we had, we had brown and crispy and then we had charcoal. And about five kilometres from the falls, back on the road to Wingham, that's where it didn't burn. I remember so much, like every time I would drive up through the charred landscape and then you'd get to this spot where the forest didn't burn and it was wet and lush and I just like breathe a sigh of relief. So you mentioned the community organising during the fire response. Do you think that the, the history of the forest activism that occurred in Newlands has affected the way that it's able, the community is able to organise in the face of climate disasters and emergencies? I haven't thought about it in that way before, but yes, I would definitely agree with that. I think the forest campaigning is like it's a grassroots movement. It's a bit anarchistic. Um, there are leaders, but there's, it's also quite diffuse leadership structures. And there's a willingness to do things because it's needed, not necessarily because it's illegal. And I think in our fire response, like all those things applied, mm -hmm. we, we had to self-organize. People just found roles and we found ways of operating that were helpful. The local RFS 
was very hesitant to have people stay on the mountain when the recommendation was that people evacuate. Mm. And they were very hesitant to give roles to people who weren't trained and covered through their volunteer program. Um, but at that time, there were fires raging in so many of the other communities and so and all over the state and so there was no other brigade that we could rely on to help us here so we had one fire truck and I think eight people who were trained and it just wasn't enough and if we had left it we had gone okay well there's no legal way for us to engage and cooperate I think the outcome would have been really different here and so what we were able to do through self-organizing as a community was to set up a headquarters at the mill, provide people with food and meals. We collated a lot of essential information. We became the hotspot for up-to-date information for everyone, like for residents, but also for the state emergency services and for the other fire crews that were coming in. We were able to provide briefings and just play that coordinating role. And then also set up, I think it was about 20 private vehicles the water carrying capacity in firefighting. So these were the Black Swans? Yes. Can you tell me yeah. a little bit about the Black Swan Brigade? Who were they and where did they come from? They're just the residents from Elands, although some of them are also young men, young women as well, who grew up in Elands but came back to help fight the fire. And you know, all of our cars got an absolute slogging because mm. a big role that the, the Black Swans played, so they you know, retrofitted their vehicles to have a thousand litres of water and a fire pump on the back of a ute so that you could do some basic firefighting where needed and and really they they patrolled they kept an eye on everything because we for a lot of the time we didn't have good communication because our phone tower went down within six hours of losing electricity the electricity was out for over two weeks we had to get our own information and so the black swans were on shift to just watch to monitor they were operating in conditions that were not extreme, manageable for people who were minimally trained. They helped people prepare their homes. They helped rake the fire breaks. They helped rake the bark and the leaves from around the big, beautiful old trees that were hollow so that hopefully the fire wouldn't get inside them and burn them up like candles. Whilst the black swans are on the front lines, other parts of the community were cooking meals for locals and the emergency service workers alike. Among them were forestry workers and logging contractors who had been redeployed as part of the firefighting effort. How does it feel now to have worked together with these groups but now mm. be standing on opposite ends of a divide? I'm a strong believer that, that there's common ground in the most unexpected places and also... We don't want to isolate individual people. We don't want them to feel like the target here. The target is policy and practice, and that's things that they have no control over. I actually think a lot of people who work for forestry actually care about forests, and they don't want to be operating in the way that they are. I know that because I've spoken with them. I know people that have left forestry after working there for years and years and years because they're brokenhearted at how forests are now being plundered instead of actually managed sustainably, which was meant to be the trajectory that forestry was on. And this current government has eroded that quite significantly. Drive back down off the plateau. The soot black bark of the trees out the window, a reminder of the raging heat and the leaping flames that would have engulfed this road three years ago. 
take a few turns and follow the signs, and soon you'll arrive in Yarrett State Forest. Yarrett State Forest is a really interesting one because it's on the relatively flat lands of the Manning Valley. This is Susie Russell, who has been living on the Bogga Plateau for the last three decades, all of which she has spent scrutinising the operations of Forestry Corporation. There are two main areas. One is a forest called Kaiwarrick, and Kaiwarrick Forest was burnt quite severely in 2019, and Yarrett Forest wasn't burnt. The Natural Resources Commission did an assessment of what needed to happen after the fires as far as forestry management was concerned, and they recommended that there should be no logging in the Yarrett or Kaiwarrick State Forests for three years after the fires. Well, the government basically refused to release the report. I mean, we know what it says because it was leaked and it has since been placed on the public record by one of the Greens members of Parliament. But the government has refused to release that report and and refused to implement any of the recommendations and therefore refused to give the unburnt area of Yarrett Forest, uh, definitely a refuge for um, the wildlife of the Manning Valley to give them any relief. We went in there last week to protest the ongoing destruction of Yarrett and the size of the trees being left behind. Honestly, you could wrap your hand around them. They're so small. The koalas of Yarrett are known, it's known to be a stronghold for koalas. It's got areas of extremely high koala habitat. There been 31 koala sightings in Yarrett since the fires compared to five in Kaiwarrick, which is a much bigger area but was burnt. In February 2022, the species was put on the National Endangered Species List and the federal government committed $76 million to koala conservation and research. That's less than Forestry Corporation received in grants following the bushfires. So it's a really important area for the local koalas and yet it has been offered not only no protection but we believe that it's actually being logged illegally because there are requirements that forestry are meant to manage their operations in space and time so that there isn't a a large cumulative impact in any one place. We've only just got some good satellite comparative images where you can see the extent of the clearing that's been going on in Yarrett where a significant proportion of the canopy has been removed right across the whole forest area. And the plan at the moment is to completely log the entire Yarra State Forest over the next few months. And that's hardly dispersing your operations in space or time. It's quite the opposite, in fact. Whilst the concerned citizens of Save Bulga Forest can collect evidence to support what they see as a breach in the Forestry Practice Code, they cannot take Forestry Corp to court. In the past, public interest litigation has played a major role in revealing non-compliance with environmental laws in public forests. In 1998, however, The Forestry Act was revised so that only the Environmental Protection Authority can prosecute the industry. As such, the effective regulation of Forestry Corp lies in the hands of the elected government. So there is an upcoming election in New South Wales this year, in March. What what are some of the policies that are currently on the table from the major parties in terms of protecting our native forests? 
Well, the Liberal National Party has nothing. They have signed contracts for ridiculously large amounts of wood. If they are re-elected, then our forests are going to be smashed, as they have been smashed for the last 20 years, and there will be more and more species that will be put on the endangered species list. The Labor Party policy, I have to say, is a massive disappointment. The signature forest policy they have taken to the previous two elections was to establish a Great Koala National Park. This time they haven't been prepared to say we're going to establish the Great Koala National Park. They've said they will establish a Great Koala National Park and they have put $80 million into a process to work out where that park might be. Now, that $80 million could buy out the contracts for the wood for the park. So to spend $80 million on a process and get nothing, they've said that there's not going to be any moratorium on logging in the area within the proposed park while they're working it out. So, I, I mean, really, it's, it's just an incredible disappointment that that's the best they could come up with. Would this... Great Koala National Park, what would it do for the forests of Yarrett and up here on the plateau? Absolutely nothing. It's it's an area around Coffs Harbour, Bellingen to Nambucca to some extent, protecting some really important forests. And, and certainly prior to the fires, those areas stood out as having the most significant koala populations on the north coast. But for the koalas and all the other fauna around here, there is no protection we are now in a climate emergency. We're in a biodiversity crisis and where all of the components of the web of life that sustains us are being pushed to fragmentation. And as those strands break, so too does our tenure as inhabitants of this part of the world. The forests play a really important role in bringing and storing rain. They store massive amounts of carbon. They hold all kinds of secrets in their biodiversity that might have amazing solutions for us at some time in the future as far as drugs and chemicals and goodness knows what, we don't know. But just as the strands of the web of life, our existence here is able to be as comfortable as it has been because of those forests. I just have so much respect for, for forests as being communities. Trees communicate to each other. They send signals about all sorts of things. They sustain members of their community that for some reason have a nutrient deficiency. We are surrounding ourselves with very, very young trees. And as with human populations, the wisdom is often with the elders. So we need to nurture these younger forests. We need to protect them. We need to hope that they will get to be old. From Susie's perspective, what the forests most need from us as humans is the opportunity to heal. And in turn, they may just heal us. We all need to be given the same access and opportunity to heal, to grow and to develop. And the best place in the world to do that is on country. So my name's Aaron, Aaron Dodds. Uh, I am born and bred on Mirapai and Waramai country. I would like to acknowledge 
that this was and will always be an, an Aboriginal land. My auntie is from Stolen Generation. I have a very large connection back to country and want to try and learn as much as I possibly can from country itself. I come from a troubled past. I made some very poor decisions as a young kid growing up and got myself in trouble with authorities and made some wrong choices throughout life and the thing that kept on re-centering me and getting me back to my roots was being on country, adventuring, exploring, using nature to heal. The company I own and started just over two years ago now, it's called Into the Wild Adventures Youth Supports. A majority of the work we, we do is we focus on assisting youth to feel that they are all equal. It doesn't matter about their race. It doesn't matter about their financial sexuality, their situations in life, whatever it may be. We all bleed red. So our goal at the end of the day was to be able to provide kids in a similar path that I had been down uh, access and opportunity. If we can try and help kids remove this blue screen addiction and understand there is so much healing available to be done within themselves and growing within themselves, but doing it via being on or above water in the forests, it's amazing. We have been supporting about 15 to 16 young Indigenous children over the last few years where these children, they struggle to identify that they are Aboriginal themselves, that they belong from country. And we held a Caves and Art Day so we went bushwalking for about two hours through about 15 to 20 different caves. And in each of the caves, we would pull out a different didgeridoo that we'd all made or we'd collected through different points of our life. We'd play it and we'd share a story of our ancestors that had walked this country and what they're doing. We then come back to the largest cave and we'd pull out all the art and we'd work with charcoal, we'd work with spray paints, we'd work with dot work. We spent two hours doing painting in these caves. We walked away from that day there with five or six of the kids saying, we know we now belong. We understand Aboriginal people are our people. And that to me is the most empowering part of our job. It sounds like through your work, there's there's been many different occasions where you've observed people overcoming their own barriers or boundaries and reconnecting with each other and with the world around them. Also, it sounds like some of the areas that you run, the activities in the camps, have been impacted by disasters such as the Black Summer bushfires and are being impacted by logging. What is it like right. to go to these places and see them being impacted by activities such as native forest logging? I've been born and bred in this area. Yarrett Forest was my back door. I explored it with my mum by horseback, by foot, with my father exploring it. I could identify a majority of the plants. I could identify a majority of the animals within that forest. To be in a position where we're watching ginormous, monstrous logging trucks and logging equipment just destroy parts of that forest. Up near Vincent's Lookout, and Newbies Cave, which are sacred grounds, uh, they're destroying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres in there. And uh, they turn around and tell us as directors and people that want the forest there that they're selectively logging. Yet with that selectively logging, the whole forest is destroyed with that one tree that falls. It's a whole ecosystem from 
the animals that rely on the leaf litter that's fallen from that tree and the, the fungi system that keeps everything breathing to your possums, your goannas, your snakes, your lizards, your, your, your koalas. Many years ago, we put some night detection cameras throughout the forest to try and document some of the animals that we had in there. And we were documenting some of the rarest frogs, but nobody would listen. So it's, it brings a tear to my eye to see that the next generation will not be able to experience what I was able to experience as a child. And then what's the footprint for the next generation after that and after that? We're destroying our world one tree at a time. We support many children with autism. Autistic children become fixated on specific aspects of life. When you give children an opportunity to heal and to grow within a forest, to then be leaving that forest and seeing the destruction that is happening around you, it's mind-blowing to see these autistic kids break down absolutely in so much pain because they're watching these giant trees be fallen and their bark be stripped off their tree within two minutes. So we're watching an area that had an ecosystem there be destroyed within two days. These kids that we're talking about, that we've been helping quite often in the forest, in the last five years, these kids have dealt with COVID, they've dealt with multiple bushfires, they've dealt with multiple floods. And because of that, their socialisation and the trauma and everything that they've gone through to be then given an opportunity by us to heal in these natural environments. But to get there, you've got to drive through trauma or to leave that place of healing, you've got to drive past trauma. It's mind-blowing. The Bulga Plateau is a place where Aaron often runs into the wild camps. Recently, he brought a group of youth that he was supporting to the Save Bulga Forest Community Camp, set up in the public lands near the Ellenborough Falls Reserve. So the campaign, Save Bulga Forest, engages in civil disobedience. So that is, protesting the logging of native forests by intentionally breaking laws, such as obstructing workers and rigging up platforms and forests that are closed to the public for timber harvest. So what would you say to someone who might see it as inappropriate to be bringing the youth in your care to a camp where people are acting outside of the law? To me, it's a peaceful movement. At the end of the day, these people that supposedly are acting outside of the law, their movement is not to cause harm to the law, to not cause harm to other people or individuals. Instead, it's to actually protect our forest, to protect our future, to make sure that the next generation actually have a forest, that they have a future. For me to bring these youth to this peaceful movement, it was an opportunity for these kids to start to learn not what a teacher teaches them, what the curriculum says this is that and the law says this is that, to actually see with their own eyes and use their own feet to give them a choice to actually make those decisions for themselves. The destruction that is occurring within our ecosystems for human greed at the moment to log our forests, to send our timber overseas, but we can't support the people that are homeless within our own communities or the people that are the most vulnerable. We have an ecosystem that's trying to regrow because of floods and fires, yet they're allowing these monstrosities to come in and I don't know who's ticking that box. 
I would love them to actually come and spend a week in the forest and heal and see what the forest can actually do for them before they start taking those trees away. What do you think needs to happen next in the lead up to this upcoming election for forests to really make it onto the agenda and to get protections for them? I think there are a range of things that people can do. I mean, if you have the capacity to be able to go to an area where there are a group of people who want to help in defending their forest, then go, be there, help. Once you're there, you don't have to be arrestable. You can cook meals and prepare media packages and all those things. If you can't do that and you live nearby, then maybe you can organise public meetings, information meetings, have a stall. If you're a bit further afield, you can write letters, bombard the the potential decision makers. So, for example, the leader of the opposition, Chris Minns, who may be the next Premier, Like, let's bombard him with communications that say this issue is important. Why aren't you saying anything about it? I think trying to elect candidates where they have actually said we will support forest protection. So there's a ring of um, independents in northern Sydney who have come out quite strongly. Um, Some of them identify as teals and some of them are just independent it's really important that we try and see that some of those people get elected to parliament and that they can then use their voice. Hopefully they'll be in a balance of power situation. Explain to people how preferences work so that they understand that they have power with their vote and they don't waste it because every vote counts. Put a sign in your yard, write a letter to your local paper, talk to your friends about it. All my friends will tell you I never shut up. (laughs) Don't talk about anything else. I mean, they're, they're the sort of things that people can do. So you've been doing this for a long time. For a very long time, longer than I've been alive, in fact. Mm-hmm. It's rather exhausting work because you have to bear witness to the idiocy of the human race at times and the destruction that is being wreaked on the natural world. So how do you find solace or motivation in these times? That's an interesting question, Tess. I suppose the things that sustain me are I find that if I'm feeling really bleh and I go for a walk just down my driveway, like I've got nearly a kilometre long driveway, I will almost inevitably see some birds that make me feel happy. And I also find that water is the other place that I can sort of try and clear my mind and then I might come back with renewed energy. But it's interesting in these times, I mean, at the moment we've been going really hard for about over a month and obviously there's a certain exhaustion to that, but there's also an incredible exhilaration to be working with so many other people who are also passionate and care and to feel like that we've gone from just being a little local thing to having something that's now a bit broader, you know, where people come in with their skills and do bits here and there. And that's what makes the difference. It's to be not doing it alone. This story was produced and recorded by me, Tessa Campisi. Music is by Declan Delaney, and you can find him on SoundCloud. If you want to find out more about the Save Bulga Forest campaign and maybe visit the plateau for yourself, head to their website at savebulgaforest.org. 
or you can find them on Facebook as well. Thank you for listening to Tezek Campisi's report from Elands. Until next time, goodbye from No Fibs.